Chapter 59, Part 3 of Principles of Geology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Principles of Geology by Charles Lyell. Etna, its eruptions, structure, and antiquity of the cone. Flood produced by the melting of snow by lava. It is possible that some of the breccias or conglomerates may be referred to aqueous causes, as great floods occasionally sweep down the flanks of Etna when eruptions take place in winter and when the snows are melted by lava. It is true that running water in general exerts no power on Etna, the rain which falls being immediately imbibed by the porous lava, so that, fast as is the extent of the mountain, it feeds only a few small rivulets and these, even, are dry throughout the greater portion of the year. The enormous rounded boulders, therefore, of felspar porphyry and basalt, a line of which can be traced from the sea from near Giardini by Mescali and Zafferana to the Valdel Bovi, would offer a perplexing problem to the geologist if history had not preserved the memorials of a tremendous flood which happened in this district in the year 1755. It appears that two streams of lava flowed in that year, on the 2nd of March, from the highest crater. They were immediately precipitated upon an enormous mass of snow which then covered the whole mountain, and was extremely deep near the summit. The sudden melting of this frozen mass by a fiery torrent three miles in length produced a frightful inundation which devastated the sides of the mountain for eight miles in length, and afterwards covered the lower flanks of Etna, where they were less steep, together with the plains near the sea, with great deposits of sand, sorry, and blocks of lava. Many absurd stories circulated in Sicily respecting this event, such as that the water was boiling and that it was vomited from the highest crater, that it was as salt as the sea and full of marine shells. But these were mere inventions to which Rocapero, although he relates them as tales of the mountaineers, seems to have attached rather too much importance. Floods of considerable violence have also been produced on Etna by the fall of heavy rains, aided, probably, by the melting of snow. By this cause alone, in 1761, sixty of the inhabitants of Akachitina were killed and many of their houses swept away glacier covered by a lava stream. A remarkable discovery was made on Etna in 1828 of a great mass of ice, preserved for many years, perhaps for centuries, from melting by the singular accident of a current of red-hot lava having flowed over it. The following are the facts in attestation of a phenomenon which must at first sight appear of so paradoxical a character. The extraordinary heat experienced in the south of Europe during the summer and autumn of 1828 caused the supplies of snow and ice which had been preserved in the spring of that year for the use of Catania and the adjoining parts of Sicily and the island of Malta to fail entirely. Great distress was consequently felt for want of a commodity regarded in those countries as one of the necessaries of life rather than an article of luxury and the abundance of which contributes in some of the larger cities 
to the celebratory of the water and in general health of the community the magistrates of catania applied to signor m gemellaro in the hope that his local knowledge of etna might enable him to point out some crevice or natural grotto on the mountain where drift snow was still preserved nor were they disappointed for he had long suspected that a small mass of perennial ice at the foot of the highest cone was part of a large and continuous glacier covered by lava current having procured a large body of workmen he quarried into this ice and proved the superposition of the lava for several hundred yards so as completely to satisfy himself that nothing but the subsequent flowing of the lava over the ice could account for the position of the glacier unfortunately for the geologist the ice was so extremely hard and the excavation so expensive that there is no probability of the operations being renewed on the first of december eighteen twenty eight i visited this spot which is on the southeast side of the cone and not far above the casse inglise but the fresh snow had already nearly filled up the new opening so that it had only the appearance of the mouth of a grotto i do not however question the accuracy of the conclusion of signor gemellaro who being well acquainted with all the appearances of drift snow in the fissures and cavities of etna had recognized even before the late excavations the peculiarity of the position of the ice in this locality we may suppose that at the commencement of the eruption a deep mass of drift snow had been covered by volcanic sand showered down upon it before the descent of the lava a dense stratum of this fine dust mixed with scoria is well known to be an extremely bad conductor of heat and the shepherds in the higher regions of etna are accustomed to provide water for their flocks during summer by strewing a layer of volcanic sand a few inches thick over the snow which effectually prevents the heat of the sun from penetrating suppose the mass of snow to have been preserved from liquefaction until the lower part of the lava had consolidated we may then readily conceive that a glacier thus protected at the height of ten thousand feet above the level of the sea would endure as long as the snows of mont blanc unless melted by volcanic heat from below when i visited the great crater in the beginning of winter december first eighteen twenty eight I found the crevices in the interior encrusted with thick ice, and in some cases hot vapors were actually streaming out between the masses of ice and the rugged and steep walls of the crater. After the discovery of Signor Gemellaro, it would not be surprising to find in the cones of the Icelandic volcanoes, which are covered for the most part with perpetual snow, repeated alternations of lava streams and glaciers, we have indeed lieutenant kendall's authority for the fact that deception island in new south shetland latitude sixty two degrees fifty five minutes south is principally composed of alternate layers of volcanic ashes and ice origin of the vallel bovee it is recorded as will be stated in the history of earthquakes chapter twenty nine that in the year seventeen seventy two a great subsidence took place on Papandayang, the largest volcano in the island of Java, an extent of ground fifteen miles in length and six in breadth, covered by no less than forty villages, was engulfed, and the cone lost four thousand feet of its height. 
in like manner the summit of carguerazol one of the loftiest of the andes of quito fell in on the nineteenth july sixteen ninety eight and another mountain of still greater altitude in the same chain called capac aru a short time before the conquest of america by the spaniards it will also be seen in the next chapter that so late as the year eighteen twenty two during a violent earthquake and volcanic eruption in java one side of the mountain called galangun which was covered by a dense forest became an enormous gulf in the form of a semicircle the new cavity was about midway between the summit and the plain and surrounded by steep rocks now we might imagine a similar event or a series of subsidences to have formerly occurred on the eastern side of etna although such catastrophes have not been witnessed in modern times or only on a very trifling scale a narrow ravine about a mile long twenty feet wide and from twenty to thirty-six in depth has been formed within the historical era on the flanks of the volcano near the town of mascalusia and a small circular tract called a cisterna near the summit sank down in the year of seventeen ninety two to the depth of about forty feet and left on all sides of the chasm a vertical section of the beds exactly resembling those which are seen in the precipices of the valdel bovis at some remote periods therefore we might suppose more extensive portions of the mountain to have fallen in during great earthquakes but we ought not to exclude entirely from our speculations another possible agency by which the great cavity may in part at least have been excavated namely the denuding action of the sea whether its waves may once have had access to the great valley before the ancient portion of etna was upheaved to its present elevation is a question which will naturally present itself to every geologist marine shells have been traced to a height of eight hundred feet above the base of etna and would doubtless be seen to ascend much higher were not the structure of the lower region of the mountain concealed by floods of lava we cannot ascertain to what extent a change in the relative level of land and sea may have been carried in this spot but we know that some of the tertiary strata in sicily of no ancient date reach a height of three thousand feet and the marine deposits on the flanks of etna full of recent species of shells may ascend to equal or greater heights the narrow valley of Kalana leading out of valdalbovi and that of san giacomo lower down have much the appearance of ravines swept out by aqueous action structure and origin of the cone of etna our data for framing a correct theory of the manner in which the cone of etna has acquired its present dimensions and internal structure are very imperfect because it is on the eastern side only in the valdel above described that we see a deep section exposed even here we obtained no insight into the interior composition of the mountain beyond a depth of between three and four thousand feet below the base of the highest cone which has been several times destroyed and renewed the precipices seen at the head of the valdel in the escarpment called the sierra del salvizio exhibit merely the same series of alternating lavas and brescias which 
descending with a general dip towards the sea, form the boundary cliffs of all the other parts of the Valdelbo V. If then we estimate the height of Etna at about 11,000 feet, we may say that we know from actual observation less than one-half of its component materials, assuming it to extend downwards to the level of the sea. Namely, first, the highest cone, which is about 1,000 feet above its base, and secondly, the alternations of lava, tuff, and volcanic brescia, which constitute the rocks between the cisterna near the base of the upper cone and the foot of the precipices at the head of the Veldel Bovis. At the lowest point to which the vertical section extends, there are no signs of any approach to a termination of the purely volcanic mass which may perhaps penetrate many thousands of feet further downwards. There is, indeed, a rock called Rocca Giannicola near the foot of the Great Escarpment, which consists of a large mass between 150 and 200 feet wide, not divided into beds, and almost resembling granite in its structure, although agreeing very closely in mineral composition with the lavas of Etna in general. This mass may doubtless be taken as a representative of those crystalline or plutonic formations which would be met with in abundance if we could descend to greater depths in the direction of the central axis of the mountain. For a great body of geological evidence leads us to conclude that rocks of this class result from the consolidation under great pressure of melted matter, which has risen up and filled rents and chasms, such, for example, as may communicate with the principal and minor vents of eruption in a volcano like Etna. But if we speculate on the nature of the formation which the lava may have pierced in its way upwards, we may fairly presume that a portion of these consist of marine tertiary rocks, like those of the neighboring Valdinoto, or those which skirt the borders of the Etnian cone on its southern and eastern sides. Etna may, in fact, have been at first an insular volcano, raising its summit but slightly above the level of the sea. But we have no grounds for concluding that any of the beds exposed in the deep section of the Valdelbovi have formed a part of such a marine accumulation. On the contrary, all the usual signs of subaqueous origin are wanting. And even if we believe the foundations of the mountain to have been laid in the sea, we could not expect this portion to be made visible in sections which only proceed downwards from the summit through one-half the thickness of the mountain, especially as the highest points attained by the Tertiary strata in other parts of Sicily very rarely exceed 3,000 feet above the sea. On the eastern and southern base of Etna, a marine deposit, already alluded to, is traced up to the height of 800 or 1,000 feet before it becomes concealed beneath that covering of modern lavas which is continually extending its limits during successive eruptions, and prevents us from ascertaining how much higher the marine strata may ascend. As the embedded shells belong almost entirely to species now inhabiting the Mediterranean, it is evident that there has been here an upheaval of the region at the base of Etna at a very modern period. It is fair, therefore, to infer that the volcanic nucleus of the mountain, 
partly perhaps of submarine and partly of subaerial origin, participated in this movement and was carried up bodily. Now, in proportion as a cone gains height by such a movement, combined with the cumulative effects of eruptions, throwing out matter successively from one or more central vents, the hydrostatic pressure of the column of lava augments with their increasing height until the time arrives when the flanks of the cone can no longer resist the increased pressure, and from that period they give way more readily, lateral outbursts becoming more frequent. Hence, independently of any local expansion of the fractured volcanic mass, those general causes by which the modern tertiary strata of a great part of Sicily have been raised to the height of several thousand feet above their original level, would tend naturally to render the discharge of lava in scoria from the summit of Etna less copious, and the lateral discharge greater. If, then, a conical or dome-shaped mass of volcanic materials was accumulated to the height of 4,000 or perhaps 7,000 feet before the upward movement began, or, what is much more probable, during the continuance of the upward movement, that ancient mass would not be buried under the products of the newer eruptions, because these last would then be poured out chiefly at a lower level. Since I visited Etna in 1828, M. de Beaumont has published a most valuable memoir on the structure and origin of that mountain, which he examined in 1834, and an excellent description of it also appeared in the posthumous work of Hoffman. In M. de Beaumont's essay, in which he has explained his views with uncommon perspicuity and talent, he maintains that all the alternating stony and fragmentary beds, more than 3,000 feet thick, which are exposed in the Veldel Bovis, were formed originally on a surface so nearly flat that the slope never exceeded 3 degrees. From this horizontal position, they were at length heaved up suddenly, de Unsoku, into a great mountain, to which no important additions have since been made. Prior to this upthrow, a platform is supposed to have existed above the level of the sea, in which various fissures opened, and from these melted matter was poured forth again and again, which spread itself around in thin sheets of uniform thickness. From the same rinse issued showers of scory and fragmentary matter, which were spread out as to form equally uniform and horizontal beds, intervening between the sheets of lava. But although, by the continued repetition of these operations, a vast pile of volcanic matter, 4,000 feet or more in thickness, was built up precisely in that region where Etna now rises, and to which nothing similar has produced elsewhere in Sicily, still we are told that Etna was not yet a mountain. No hypothetical diagram has been given to help us to conceive how this great mass of materials of supramarine origin could have been disposed of in horizontal beds, so as not to constitute an eminence towering far above the rest of Sicily. But it is assumed that a powerful force far below at length burst suddenly through the horizontal formation, uplifted it to a considerable height, and caused the beds to be, in many places, highly inclined. 
this elevatory force was not all expended on a single central point as van bush has imagined in the case of palma tenerife or soma but rather followed for a short distance a linear direction among other objections that may be advanced against the theory above proposed i may mention first that the increasing number of dikes as we approach the head of the valdel bovi or the middle of etna and the great thickness of lava scoriae and conglomerates in that region imply that the great centre of eruption was always where it now is or nearly at the same point and there must therefore have been a tendency from the beginning to a conical or dome-shaped arrangement in the ejected materials secondly were we to admit a great number of separate points of eruption scattered over a plain or platform there must have been a great number of cones thrown up over these different vents and these hills some of which would probably be as lofty as those now seen on the flanks of etna or from three hundred to seven hundred fifty feet in height would break the continuity of the sheets of lava while they would become gradually enveloped by them the ejected materials moreover would slope at a high angle on the sides of these cones and where they fell on the surrounding plain would form strata thicker near the base of each cone than at a distance what then are the facts it will be asked to account for which this hypothesis of original horizontality followed by a single and sudden effort of upheaval which gave to their beds the present slope has been invented m de mont observes that in the boundary precipices of the valdel bovis sheets of lava and intercalated beds of cinders mixed with pulverulent and fragmentary matter evidently cast out during eruptions are sometimes inclined at steep angles varying from fifteen degrees to twenty seven degrees it is impossible he says that the lavas could have flowed originally on plains so steeply inclined for streams which descend a slope even of ten degrees form narrow stripes and never acquire such a compact texture their thickness moreover always inconsiderable varies with every variation of steepness in the declivity down which they flow whereas in several parts of the valdel bovis the sheets of lava are continuous for great distances in spite of their steep inclination and are often compact and perfectly parallel one to the other even where there are more than one hundred beds of interpolated fragmentary matter the intersecting dikes also terminate upwards in many instances at different elevations and blend or as m de beaumont terms it articulate with sheets of lava which they meet at right angles it is therefore assumed that such dikes were the feeders of the streams of lava with which they unite and they are supposed to prove that the platform on the surface of which the melted matter was poured out was at first so flat that the fluid mass spread freely and equally in every direction and not towards one point only of the compass as would happen if it had descended the sloping sides of a cone this argument is ingeniously and plainly put in the following terms Quote, had the melted matter poured down an inclined plane after issuing from a rent the sheet of lava would after consolidation have formed an elbow with the dike like the upper bar of the letter f 
instead of extending itself on both sides like that of a T. End quote. It is also contended that a series of sheets of lava formed on a conical or dome-shaped mountain would have been more numerous at points farthest from the central axes, since every dike which had been the source of a lava stream must have poured its contents downwards and never upwards. In reference to the facts here stated, I may mention that the dikes which I saw in the Valdel Bovee were either vertical or made almost all of them a near approach to the perpendicular, which could not have been the case had they been the feeders of horizontal beds of lava, and had they consequently joined them originally at right angles, for then the dikes ought subsequently to have acquired a considerable slope, like the beds which they intersect. I may also urge another objection to the views above set forth, namely, that had the dikes been linear vents or orifices of eruption, we must suppose the interstratified scoriae and lapilli, as well as the lavas, to have come out of them, and in that case the irregular heaping of fragmentary matter around the vents would, as before hinted, have disturbed that uniform thickness and parallelism of the beds which M. de Beaumont describes. If, however, some of the sheets of lava join the dikes in such a manner as to imply that they were in a melted state simultaneously with the contents of the fissures, a point not easily ascertained where the precipices are for the most part inaccessible, the fact may admit of a different interpretation from the proposed by the French geologists. Rents like those before alluded to, which opened in the plain of South Leo in 1669, filled below with incandescent lava, may have lain in the way of currents of melted matter descending from higher openings. In that case, the matter of the current would have flowed into the fissures and mixed with the lava at its bottom. Numerous open rents of this kind are described by Mr. Donna as having been caused during a late eruption in one of the volcanic domes of the Sandwich Islands. They remained open at various heights on the slopes of the Great Cone, running in different directions, and demonstrate the possibilities of future junctions of slightly inclined lava streams with perpendicular walls of lava. To me, therefore, it appears far more easy to explain the uniform thickness and parallelism of so many lavas and beds of fragmentary matter seen in the Valdel Bovee by supposing them to have issued successively out of one or more higher vents near the summit of a great dome than to imagine them to have proceeded from lateral dikes or rents opening in a level plain. In the Sandwich Islands, we have examples of volcanic domes 15,000 feet high produced by successive outpourings from vents at or near the summit. One of these, Mount Lao, has a slope in all directions of 6 degrees 30 minutes. Another, Mount Kia, a mean inclination of 7 degrees 46 minutes. That their lavas may occasionally consolidate on slopes of 25 degrees and even more and still preserve considerable solidity of texture has been already stated. We know not how large a quantity of modern lava may have been poured into the bottom of the Valdelbovi, 
yet we perceive that eruptions breaking forth near the center of etna have already made some progress in filling up this great hollow even within the memory of persons now living the rocks of masura and capra have as before stated lost much of their height and picturesque grandeur by the piling up of recent lavas around their base and the great chasm has intercepted many streams which would otherwise have deluged the fertile region below as has happened on the side of catania the volcanic forces are now laboring therefore to repair the breach which subsidence has caused on one side of the great cone and unless their energy should decline or a new sinking take place they may in time efface this inequality in that event the restored portion will always be unconformable to the more ancient part yet it will consist like it of alternating beds of lava scoria and conglomerates which with all their irregularities will have a general slope from the centre and summit of etna towards the sea i shall conclude then by remarking that i conceive the general inclination of the alternating stony and fragmentary beds of the valdelbovi from the axis of etna towards its circumference or base and the greater thickness of the volcanic pile as we approach the central parts of the mountain to be due to the preponderance of eruptions from that center these gave rise from the first to a dome-shaped mass which has ever since been increasing in height and area being fractured again and again by the expansive force of vapors and the several parts made to cohere together more firmly after the solidification of the lava with which every open fissure and chasm has been filled at the same time the cone may have gained a portion of its height by the elevatory effect of such dislocating movements and the sheets of lava may have acquired in some places a greater in others a less inclination than that which at first belonged to them but had the mountain been due solely or even principally to upheaval its structure would have resembled that which geologists have so often recognized in dome-shaped hills or certain elevated regions which all consider as having been thrust up by a force from below in this case there is often an elliptical cavity at the summit due partly to the fracture of the upraised rocks but still more to aqueous denudation as they rose out of the sea the central cavity or valley exposes to view the subjacent formation and the incumbent mass dips away on all sides from the axis but has no tendency to thin out near the base of the dome whereas at this point the volcanic mass terminates and allows the fundamental rock to appear at the surface the more ordinary case is represented of a great hollow or crater at the summit of the volcanic cone but instead of this we have seen that in the case of etna there is a deep lateral depression called valdel bovi the upper part of which approaches near the central axis and the origin of which we have attributed to subsidence end of section fifty nine part three